Hi, I'm Jessica Chaffin, and welcome to the Jewish Bazaar Podcast. I'm here today with my two co-hosts, esteemed academics and all-around menches, Eddie Portnoy of the Yivo Institute in New York. Hi, Eddie. Hello. How's it by you? <laughs> I was just being professional and polite to you for a change. When um, aren't you professional? Oh, mo- <laughs> I, uh, I, I do think it's better to lo- look at that in the reverse and figure out when I am professional. But um, And then our fabulous friend and colleague, Mr. Tony Michaels, Dr. Tony Michaels, I believe, is, is what we've established. Is that right? That is Of the correct. University of Wisconsin at Madison. Correct. How are you, Anthony? Very well, thanks. How are you, Tom? <laughs> it's just Tony, isn't it? It's just Tony. Yeah, it's just Tony. there is no it's- Anthony. It's Anthony. It's Anthony Edward. It's Tony from the block. Though, you know, I had a cousin, a Jewish cousin, uh, whose name was Anthony, but not Tony. They uh, called him, it... called him Tony. Huh. He, he yeah. was a, an assimilationist. Was it Mark, <laughs> was it Mark Anthony? Yeah. As in Mark Anthony. No, his name was Anthony, but he was named sort of like Mark Anthony. Anyway, this show isn't about me and it's not about my cousins. This show is about taking a look at certain topics, uh, see guys, I don't know what this show is about. This show is about what? The strange, the weird, the unusual, and the bizarre aspects of Jewish history and culture. Oh, good answer, Tony. In other words, the Jews. <laughs> right. The and Jews. maybe a few things that people might not uh, totally expect to be associated with said people. And today's topic, I'm going to tell everyone right now, I don't understand it for the life of me, but that is why we have Tony Michaels here today to tell us what we're going to be discussing. We're going to be discussing Jews who hated Judaism. Oh, okay. You know did they, I, I did they I hate it or they just wanted to be different than it is? I don't no, know if that's an accurate it. description. It is a very accurate description. They hated Judaism. It's not your turn, Eddie. So if that's right. what Tony wants to say, then that's what it is. I'll, I'll hold back for now. <laughs> You're welcome to skewer him, but let, or flay him, I should say. But let him let him get it out. Let him get his thesis out first, and then we can pick it apart. You know, I'd like to flay Tony and then sell his skin to his students as jerky. <laughs> I don't think you would get the market value that it's worth. I know. It's, besides, it's been done already. Yeah. Tony, what are we going to be talking about today? Tell the people. We're, we are going to talk about Jews who hated Judaism. Okay. So I've got much one so. eyebrow raised, but I'm listening. So I'll, I'm going to try to raise your other eyebrow. They hated Judaism so much that they tried to completely abolish it. But there has to be some love wrapped in there, because if they just hated it, then they wouldn't try to do anything to it. No, no, they hated it. But that's always how the way, isn't it? No, no, it was not always the way. That was a new new thing in the 1880s when the first all-out assaults on Judaism were uh, happened in New York City and in London. It was very but I'm new. In life, you have to love something a little bit in order to hate it, because otherwise, why would you try to change it? If you just hated something, mm-hmm. why, could, why can't you just let it go? But you uh, hate it so much, you want it to change. You want to change the institution. They didn't want to change it. They wanted to abolish it. Well, why don't you get specific then and tell us <laughs> what we're talking about? And I'll be quiet for a minute, and Eddie will probably be quiet for a minute. I'm going to try. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what uh, I'm talking about. So in in the 1880s, um, anarchists started cropping up 
in New York and London, other cities. And uh, these were Eastern European, mostly Russian-born Jews who migrated westward and uh, found themselves in the Jewish ghettos of the east side of London, the east side of New York, and they were becoming radicalized. They discovered anarchism, Marxism, uh, other ide ideologies, and uh, as part of the radicalization, many of them had come, I should say many of them had come from traditional religious backgrounds. Some had been yeshiva students. Mm -hmm. um, uh, many weren't, but they had come from traditional home, homes, many of them. And uh, they decided that re all religion, including Judaism, was responsible for the spiritual enslavement of mankind and had to be totally abolished okay. along with, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Keep going. So, so I'll keep going. So, um, <laughs> uh, one, one fine day in New York in 1889, uh, anarchists decided that they were going to, um, uh, honor Yom Kippur by holding what they called Yom Kippur balls. They rented a room, a hall somewhere on the Lower East Side. Um, they and uh, it was they decided it would be a big festive occasion. Of course, of course, Yom Kippur is the most holy day on the Jewish calendar. It's a solemn day. You're not supposed to do anything. You're not supposed to eat. You're not supposed to drink. You're not supposed to smoke. You're not supposed to do anything but go to shul mm -hmm. and um, and atone for your sins. The anarchists decided to do the opposite in these Yom Kippur balls by having a big giant party. They recited. Yiddish poetry that denounced God and religion and rabbis. Uh, they danced. They ate lots of food. They did everything they weren't supposed to do. And that marked uh, the beginning of the Yom Kippur balls, again, as a, as, an, as, a, as a strike, a blow against the domination of religion over the Jews. How many people attended the first Yom Kippur ball? Hundreds. Hundreds attended. Uh, maybe upward of a thousand or more. I think anarchists claim uh, um, after the second or third ball that there was as many as 5,000 who wanted to attend. One of them in Brooklyn was was um, canceled by the mayor of Brooklyn. Uh, the mayor of Brooklyn got word of this anarchist ball. Uh, there were Jewish leaders who complained about it and, and the mayor the mayor shut it down, canceled it, uh, but, um, which was probably not in line with the constitution. But, you know, we're talking about a pretty sizable number of immigrants wanted to take part in these. So it's strictly Ooh. philosophical or what are they hoping to get out of it? Well, they hope to, first of all, they hope to first and first and most immediately confront the rabbis and the Orthodox Jews uh, to as a, as a protest against them. They wanted to confront them. And but the, the ultimate goal was to was to bring down the state, to bring down the capitalist system. And they believe that couldn't happen unless religion was brought down with it. So it's a political act and it's and it's really based in this concept of, I guess, Marxism, which is pre-communism. Well, in the case of the anarchists, the anarchists, we don't have to get too arcane, but the anarchists were not Marxists. The, uh, their view is, uh, yeah, it was a political act. Their view that was that religion enslaved, uh, contributed to the enslavement of humans uh, that they couldn't under humans couldn't understand the world as it is uh, if they believed in miracles, if they believed in God, if they believed in superstitions, and uh, so they wanted to protest it. They wanted to again confront it, uh, expose 
religion is the lie that they saw it was, that they thought it was, and that would contribute to the radicalization of the Jews that would help, that would help hasten the revolution. You know, going back to what Jessica said earlier, uh, isn't uh, confronting these religious traditions by doing the opposite of what you're supposed to do? You know, if you're supposed to fast and pray and, uh, you know, not smoke or do anything like that, by performing these acts on the holiday in question, isn't that also kind of a celebration of the holiday? Uh, although, and in, in doing so, in doing so, wouldn't it also be kind of the creation of a secular Jewish identity? Because you're still within the framework of Jewish culture if you're celebrating Yom Kippur in some way. Well, it's not a celebration of Yom Kippur. It's a protest against it. That's what it was. But I think I understand your, your point that in some way it's creating some new kind of Jewish ritual. Is that your point? Was that your Yeah, that, 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 that is that? my point. Was, it was it was a fairly inarticulately stated point, but I but I, but I think my, I, I, my I, apologies. I, I, I think my, I, my, I, my I apologies just, for being inarticulate. I, I he's just an Evo guy, Tony. He's not a Madison guy, <laughs> right? That's right. I mean, you, you know, know got to make know, allowances here. That's true. That's true. I'm sorry. I, I should have taken that into account. He's just a shtetl scholar. That's exactly. all he is. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, sm- I'm a small, you know, I'm plain shtetl dick. <laughs> You're plain shtetl dick. Yeah. I'm Groishtot. I'm Groishtotic. You're Stottish. You're Stottish. What does it mean, guys? We're gonna. We can't. We don't have subtitles on this show. I'm a big city Jew here in Madison. He's out there. I'm the country mouse. He's the city mouse. Yeah. Yes, the country mouse of New York City. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Where, so. Where were, oh yeah. So you were saying, Eddie, that it uh, that it's a kind of. Um, it's a, it's a way of marking uh, right. It's a re- it's a recognition of the, that the holiday is something important, and, yeah. and they're they're celebrating it in a just in a different way. Because well, what no, you, they're uh, not you know, celebrating the holiday. No. They're, they're but what well, they, they are doing is they're um, they're, they're certainly recognizing say, it. They're increasing its importance. I would say. Yeah, I mean, anytime you criticize something, you are giving it more importance than perhaps you should. I mean, why not just forget about it? Right, exactly. This is a political act. It's not really, it's about their own political self-interests. It's not really about, I mean, I understand that how they feel about religion is wrapped inside of that, but is there, is their goal really to take down religion or is their goal to alter society? It was to take down religion. I know it's hard. It's, you know, in a way it's hard to grasp how serious they were about it. Um, I mean, there are very few people today who or many people who are atheists or many people who don't like religion. But yeah. I don't know of anyone that actually confronts it in such a militant way. How the radical way the, this is. Yeah. So and, do, and confront, confrontational, too. So right. it's, all, it's also exi- at a time when more people are, when people were generally more religious right. than they are today. So who, A, who are the leaders of this movement and what led them to this place? And yeah, I guess that's my first question. Who are these strange people? Uh, most of the names will be totally unrecognizable today. I think, in fact, I think all of them, most of them are unknown, except for a few scholars. Was that away. the whole book report, The Balls, Tony, or is there more? I guess is what I'm asking. It's really to be known as the Yom Kippur Ball Movement. 
True. It's the ball movement. <laughs> and, well, I'll tell you who these people were. They Most of them at the time were in their 20s. Um, again, they were new arrivals from Eastern Europe. Uh, they were just beginning to explore the world, to open their horizons, and they became radicalized. So they were very, very fervent in everything at, at the time. They later, a number of them later became prominent figures in the Jewish community. They became labor leaders, Yiddish journalists, lecturers, mm -hmm. playwrights. Uh, some of them became dentists. And um, they... Uh, our, our favorite kind. Our favorite kind of anarchist. And um, yeah, so they actually became very prominent over time, which is which is not necessarily what you'd expect. You know, you, you think that these young militants hell-bent on bringing down Judaism would not become prominent leaders of the immigrant Jewish community, but they did. So where does the movement grow from there, from that time in the 1880s? Well, on the, the Yom Kippur Baal movement, Baal movement uh, the was... Baal uh, movement, the Yom the Kippur Baal, Baal the, movement? The, the Yom Kippur Baal movement. One of uh, the most important parts of Yom Kippur. One of the only things you can enjoy on Yom Kippur. Actually, you're not supposed you're, you're you're not supposed to enjoy it. Oh, Just but so you, you can know. still have one, can't you? You can have one, but you're not supposed to. You're, you're not supposed to enjoy anything on Yom The Yom only day of the year you're not supposed to enjoy a bowel movement. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> is there any dispute so it is over written. that? It is written. Where who's written? You, there, who's there's gonna, no who can cite that for us, Eddie? Yeah, have you got, I, have I, you got a citation? I believe, I believe that's in a baraita in uh, <laughs> in Talmud. Uh, Rosh Hashanah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Is that uh, is that open for verification? In other words, who is who is responsible for adjudicating enjoyment in this instance? Uh that would be the rabbis. But I don't I don't think I don't think they they adjudicate it in that way. There're just there are certain things you're not allowed to do in the general sense is that you enjoy anything. You're, you're not supposed to really enjoy anything. I see. Well, that's not, okay. Same shit again, Eddie, though, because people enjoy punishing themselves. They do. <laughs> and that yeah. is, and you're definitely supposed to enjoy that on Yom Kippur. Mm, true. That, yeah. that, that, that's, there's a real contradiction there. Well, Je yeah. well, Jessica raises an interesting point, which is- um, It's a masochist uh, holiday. A masochist. Well, that's just the question. Yeah. Well, how do you determine enjoyment for a masochist? Right, that's true. I mean, you know, but could you say that the entire Jewish people is consists of of masochists, or on there, that uh, day, uh, on that day in particular? Although, you know, it's interesting because if you consider Hasidim, you know, joy is paramount. Mm -hmm. So yes, but you enjoy punishing yourself. You can enjoy punishing yourself. Yeah, that that's that's true. You know, I don't think that that is anyway. This has nothing to do discussed. with this conversation about no. what we're talking about today. Although, although we, we don't have to talk about it now, but maybe we should at some point in the conversation return to uh, Yom Kippur and discuss whether it's actually something that has value or not. Were the anarchists right or were they wrong? That's a good question. From their we, perspective, we they're, they're right. But from the, the opposition's perspective, which is probably the majority of, of the Jews who, who celebrate Yom Kippur, uh, they're, they're very unhappy with them. And in fact, there were some times when anarchists had these events uh, or other similar events uh, in different places, there were pitched battles. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, people 
fought in the streets over this. Uh, you know, there are a couple of examples. There's one restaurant on the Lower East Side uh, named Herrick Brothers in the late 1890s. Uh, they advertised in the Yiddish newspapers that they would be open for business on Yom Kippur and anyone who was hungry could come and eat. And people did and Jews did. And they did so uh, at hours that people were going to and from synagogue, thereby infuriating religious people. And there were riots in this place. So some people were, were yeah. you know, furiously antagonistic towards this activity. You know, some Window, people ignored it. Windows were smashed. Were the owners of that deli uh, or that restaurant or whatever it was, appetizing shop, um, were they... Uh, anarchists, or or were they just uh, capitalists? I, I I believe that they were leftists of an unknown strain. So it I, was I an know. act of protest to stay. It, it, it was an act of protest. It wasn't absolutely. just we have a looser interpretation of this holiday. No, no, it, it was an absolute act of protest. We're not pre-reform. No, and there were other you know other similar acts took place. It, Different times and uh, in different places. For example, in in Warsaw, uh, there was a group known as the Free Thinkers in Yiddish, the the Freidenker. They had their own mag monthly magazine, and it was essentially an atheist, a leftist atheist organization, and they were anti-religious. And so mm -hmm. they did similar things. They would have, um, they would give lectures on Yom Kippur. They would send out their adherents into the streets. Uh, the day of Yom Kippur. Uh, they would walk around eating apples and smoking cigarettes and selling copies of their magazine. And they would do this specifically outside synagogues uh, in order to antagonize people. And it certainly worked. Um, there were always fights uh, that the Polish police had to break up and they, they were, you know, the Polish police really didn't want to get involved with an inter inter Jewish activities but uh you know they invariably had to because uh you know there there was there was violence involved and so so what is all of this born out of and, i'll tell you I'll and are these you. the only examples of this or does this continue to this day because you're you what you were positing tony yes. is that there are jews that hate judaism and so i want yes. to understand more about that so i'm going to read to you a poem that was oh, written boy. in yiddish Yes, a poem that was written, or the sum of a poem, part of a poem that was written in Yiddish and performed in uh, 1889, 1890 uh, in one of the anarchist balls. This is, uh, the author is a guy named Dovid Edelstadt, and uh, this is what he wrote. Why complain, you orthodox oxen? Do you want jury to consist only of animals, ignorant and stupid? Do you wish us to bow down to your archaic god, Lower your, our heads before every pious idiot. Each era has its new Torah. Ours is one of freedom and justice. For us, the greatest transgression is to be an obedient slave. Mm. And it goes on like that. Um, Edelstadt. That's Edelstadt. So, so what's really, what I think is interesting here is that all of this is done within the framework of Jewish culture. It's in Yiddish. Uh, it's talking about a new Torah. Uh, it's, just opposed to the religion. It's not opposed to, you know, this kind of sense of Jewishness that it comes out of. So it's really the fashioning of a new secular 
Jewish culture that's carried by the Yiddish language, mm -hmm. which ultimately is a very Jewish product. I'm going to tell you something even stranger. Edelstadt didn't know Yiddish until he came to the United States. He, wow, that's he, amazing. Yeah, he uh, only spoke Russian in Russia. His father had been a soldier in the Russian army, which is a whole traumatic experience in and of itself, but the kids weren't raised with Yiddish. So he moved to the United States, and after about four years or so, he learned Yiddish so he could propagate anarchist ideas among Jewish workers. So that he could so be part of the community. He could be yeah. part of the community in his own way. So he learned Yiddish to write poetry of the kind I just read, attacking Judaism. That's that's just that's just what was but going also, on. But also, Yiddish is a secular language. It's just a language. Well, it's a vernacular. Yeah, it's not. It's not secular. It's not religious. It's it's just the you know it's the carrier of whatever culture you want. Right, it but it's not religious. Hebrew so is not, religious. Right. It has no right. It has no inherent religious value, and it uh, is derived so, from in some way. A religious language, right? I think what but you're saying. Is, you're, I think what you're trying to say is there's no, the Yiddish isn't a liturgical language. Yeah. Uh, right. Yes. It's, it's not, not a religious choice to speak Yiddish uh, for him. It's a hmm. it's a way to communicate to a community that he's part of that he wants to disrupt from the inside out. Yes, but he's coming from the outside himself in a certain sense because he doesn't know the language until he gets to New York. So he learns this language to disrupt from within. Right. Um, and all that's happening, all that's happening on the Lower East Side, which is this, uh, in, a, in an atmosphere of incredible ferment. Hmm. What else happens? What else? You know, you know, what, I feel what, like what, we've had two events here. I mean, I'm not like, you know, I need to know that this is either a movement or that it expanded or I don't know. I'm just curious. I want to know more. It, it it goes for a while through into the eighteen into the eighteen nineties, but then in the beginning of the next century, a lot of the anarchists say, "You know what? This isn't a good idea. This is a bad idea." What uh, makes them say that? I think you know they see a few things. One, you know, they're getting older. Some might even be having kids themselves. I think part of it is they don't see the need for it anymore because really, how great is the authority of the rabbis in, in the United States. The rabbis actually don't have much authority at all. And a lot of the po Jewish population is drifting away from religious uh. tradition. So they thought it was really in, unnecessary. It was a little childish, many of them thought. And mm -hmm. then um, the pogrom, the, uh, you know, uh, um, pogroms in Europe, starting with the 1903 Kishinev pogrom, convinced a lot of the anarchists that attacking Jew, Jews isn't really called for. It's, it's in bad taste, to say the least. And their whole thinking about Jewishness changed in the face of anti-Jewish violence. And many of the anarchists started um, rethinking a lot of their ideas, and, and some became Zionists, as well as anarchists. Uh, also, an unexpected combination, because why would, how, how do you square those two things? How do you square anarchism, which is a movement against the state, uh, how do you square that with a movement to create a Jewish homeland? Um, well, but a lot of a lot of anarchists moved in that direction. Yes, but a movement against the state. So what's the state? It depends on the state that you live within, meaning your your where does the community exist? What's the context of the community? Whether it's America or the UK or whatever it is. So Zionism is this opportunity 
maybe utopia is going too far, but it's this opportunity to remake society the way that you want it. And so anarchists, I agree. I think it's immature to just say no all the time to everything, but you have to have your own set of ideals. Of course, there's the, this is, I mean, this is the dilemma of mankind, which is it's no when you're young and then you're in charge and now it's okay, let's do it our way. And now you're the establishment and then the young people say no again. But the, or rebel against that or whatever, but Zionism is an opportunity for the anarchists to uh, create. Otherwise, they're full of shit. Well, no, they, anarch- they don't have an disappear. idea of how they want society to be other than what they don't want it to be. I mean, anarchism, anarchism doesn't yeah. disappear. It, it, it's not, it's, not, it's not crazy to me that they would progress to be Zionists or something else. I mean, communists, whatever, you know, whatever they, whatever is attractive to them as a set of societal ideals. No, well, right. it, it's not, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't disappear. It just, I, I think the anarchists take the tack that uh, they're not going to be uh anti-religious in the ways that they were. Uh, that said, the anti-religious impulse continues and gets transferred to various other organizations. Uh, for example, the Bund uh, has certain anti-religious aspects. This is the Jewish socialist organization. Uh, and other Jewish leftists and socialist groups continue uh, to uh, engage in anti-religious activities uh, You know, from this time through the 20s and 30s. It's not uncommon at all. Like I said, this this group, the, the Free Thinkers in Poland, had a monthly magazine. You could read reports in this in this magazine from, uh, and there are reports from small shtetls uh, to the big cities of, you know, all kinds of Yom Kippur uh, activities that they're engaging in that, are kind of anti Yom Kippur. They have sort of eating festivals in Warsaw. The Bund and other socialist organization gives out free food uh, on Yom Kippur only to Jews. If you wanted, if you wanted the food they were giving out, they would throw you know Gentiles out of the line because you could only be Jewish if to get the free food. Otherwise, it wasn't heresy, uh, and and their goal was to engage in heresy. Uh, you know, so these things sort of continue, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, the anarchists don't disappear after you know this sort of initial burst of energy in the 1880s and 1890s. Uh, you know, they have uh, you know a press and news. You know, they have newspapers that that you know exist and are you know popular at a certain level. You know, through Tony, when does when does the Fry Arbiter Stimme go out of business? 1977, I think. Which is. You know, that's a fairly long run. I think it started in 1890. 1890, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what anarchists did is in their extremism, they force certain questions on Jews. You know, can you be Jewish without religion at all? Can you have a Jewish homeland without a state? Um, You know, these are, and so like you're saying, Jessica, it makes sense in some level that they would look, work towards some constructive solutions, but but you also have to remember that each of the things we're describing was highly unusual at the time. Um, right. you, you know, there were there was no one else attacking religion to, to the degree anarchists did. There was no one in the Zionist movement, not in the United States, who was talking about this kind of um, talk to, who were, who were pl- blending anarchism with with uh, with 
with the Jew, the, the need for a Jewish homeland of some kind. You know, the, the, these these ideas were 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 new and considered pretty pretty strange um, in the moment they come into existence. Did they yeah. team up with non-Jewish anarchists? Yeah, yeah. By um, you know, it's definitely by I would say by the nineteen. Yeah, actually, from the beginning, I should should say from the be very beginning, a lot of German anarchists in New York and Jewish anarchists um, socialized with one another, cooperated, organized things together. In fact, one of the popular speakers at the at the Yom Kippur balls was uh, a German named Johann Most. Um, who's not Jewish. Um, he and was the most. He was the most. To say the very least. And mm. he, uh, and so he, so there was co uh, cooperation with Germans, eventually with Italians, Italian anarchists and, and so on. But in New York, Jews dominated the anarchist movement um, by, you know. I but know, didn't it seem that the Jews were very receptive to anarchism? Uh, I don't know. Do you, do you, why, be, why? Why do you say that? I don't know. It seems to me that, you know, if you have German anarchists like, let's say, Rudolf Rocker, who are learning learning Yiddish in order to appeal to the Jewish community, I think they clearly saw that uh, this was a community that was that was receptive to this, uh, this ideology. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Jews, Jews were receptive to lots of different radical ideologies. Anarchism was one of them. Again, it was something that you know, it was it was strange in the eyes or interesting, fascinating or dangerous in the eyes of many non-Jews who looked at Jews at this time and said, you know, who are these people? You know, why are there so many anarchists? Why are they attacking religion? How come so many of them are socialists? What does that mean? What does that mean uh, for, for, for America? What, what does, does that, that say mean? about the Jews? What does it mean? Uh, I think uh, gee, I think that's a, That's probably a show in and of itself. I mean, for the Jews, it means that for many of them, they became Americans in this atmosphere of revolt uh, and sh probably shaped probably shaped who American Jews were for a long time to come. You know, that, in other words, they come onto the American scene with this uh, rebellious attitude, this feeling that this conviction that the United States had to be changed radically. Um, so if, if I'm understanding you correctly, that I think that American Jews should really look to anarchists <laughs> to see how their culture was influenced. That's one thing they should do. Yeah. I mean, that's not the only people they should look to, but they should but certainly it's, look. It's to definitely exercising, though, a right, I guess, that did not exist for them in their homelands necessarily. I mean, it is right. taking advantage of all the freedoms, which is mm -hmm. pretty, I mean, which is very cool, I think, to. Yeah to go from a place of danger in a lot of cases to saying, you know, most people would just be happy to have a roof over their head or, you know, not the threat of being murdered uh, in their home. And instead they were like really going for it saying, I think I'm going to taste right. the whole buffet. That's exactly right. I mean, any, everything we're describing. There's something was, very vital about that. that yeah, that's, there really is. That, that yeah. Anarch, anarchists, embraced American freedom to, to the extreme. They like you said, you know, they just took the whole buffet. They took it and ran with it. They, they were, I mean, look, the word that one of the terms for anarchism back then was libertarian, you know, ah. that they were, that they were libertarian socialists or 
libertarian, you know, libertarian communists, they use these different words. But the point is that they valued freedom, individual freedom in the extreme. And they knew they couldn't practice this in Russia. They knew they could practice it in the United States. Mm -hmm. But they also believed that the United States was was, um, you know, their view is the United States was filled with oppression. Uh, Despite the freedoms that it had, it wasn't enough. And they wanted to overthrow the existing order. But this has a lot to do with like the workers movement and uh, serfs or peasants becoming, you know, having a seat at the table and joining society and this sort of movement of people from, I mean, this is like Fritz Lang stuff. Yeah, that's where it comes from. Yeah, there was a larger movement, workers' movement. The idea that the worker is an an enslaved person and that they don't understand their place in the wheel. Yeah, uh, that's right. And so anarchists viewed themselves as the the vanguard of workers' liberation. What, what, you know, among the ironies, I guess we've been talking about is that uh, Jews became the standard bearers of what was supposed to be a universal ideal, but... Uh, didn't have a great deal of appeal to most Americans. You know, you had some anarchists and Germans, but after a while, most of the standard bearers of anarchism were, were Jews, uh, certainly in New York. Um, right. Again, and, you know, well, well known, you know, the names that people know are Alexander Berkman and Emma Goldman. Those are the famous uh, ones. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, interestingly, like what, what you said about, uh, you know, the, having the freedom to mm-hmm. engage in this kind of protest uh, to a certain degree, was unique uh, in America because this, this, all of this played anti-religious um, uh, material plays out very differently in Russia. Yeah. And after the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, you wind up with the USSR, which sees the Jews as essentially a nation. Uh, they have everything that a nation has. They have their own language. They have their own folkways. Their own music. Uh, their own literature, all that they lack is uh, a land of their own. Uh, so, but the Soviet Union treats them as uh, essentially a nation. And what they, because the Soviet Union is an anti-religious uh, inst- institution, uh, the Jews who were responsible for administering the Jewish community, and this is an organization cre- uh, called the Yevsektsia, uh, the Jewish section of the Communist Party, uh, they were ultimately an anti-religious organization. So they had to co- try and denude Jewish culture of religious aspects. And this was a sort of an across-the-board Soviet policy uh, where, on the one hand, Jews were suddenly in the Soviet, Jews in the Soviet Union were suddenly completely free. Uh, they were you know, free citizens, equal on par to everyone else. Prior to that, under this, under the czars, they had, they were, you know, their movement was restricted, uh, where they could live was restricted. They were restricted certain types of occupations. Um, in the Soviet Union, they were sort of free to go anywhere and go to university and take any job they wanted. Uh, but because the atmosphere was anti-religious, they had to engage in all kinds of anti-religious behavior. So the Jews who ran the Yevsektia instituted um, uh, anti-religious events. So they, uh, for example, an a, a Haggadah was published that was anti-Passover, that sort of tried to uh, show how Passover was an oppressive holiday. 
they would have plays for they would have plays performed for major Yiddish, major major Jewish holidays that were anti-religious, that were opposed to the holidays themselves. It's funny, uh, the idea that Passover is an anti- Right, of uh, course. Yeah, because it's like the original uh, workers' revolt. Right, right. But they, you know, they claimed that, you know, their claim was yeah. that, that religious religion is oppressive. Uh, it's, you know- it, So it, this- it, Go ahead. But, but well, part so of the- that is also just propaganda. So it's about taking a group that already has a- pre-established set of uh, ideas, let's say, or narratives or whatever, infiltrating that thing, trying to make you see it another way, and then converting you to a different philosophy. So it's not quite as simple as, it's not, it's more insidious than just being anti. Shall we put put it that way? Than oh being yeah, absolutely. It, it was, uh, I mean, under the Soviet state, uh, uh, religion was was persecuted. I mean, you know, su- circumcision uh, was outlawed. Th- there was there were all sorts of yeah, co- um, kosher slaughter was outlawed. Kosher slaughter was outlawed. Synagogues were taken over and see they were seized. Uh, I mean, I ch- mean, churches were as well. Churches and mosques were as well. This was you know this was across yeah. the board. Um, also, though, anti-Semitism was officially outlawed. It was you know illegal to engage in anti-Semitism. That's not to say that people didn't do it but you know it's there uh, there's a scholar of um uh, the jews of russia uh, named Tzvi gittelman who says that in the soviet union uh the practices uh regarding Jew- jews were, were uh bad for judaism but good for jews okay meaning so meaning I've... that meaning that Ju- judaism was sort of in a way outlawed to a certain degree the religion uh but jews were free to sort of do what they want as normal as regular citizens. So you would call this faction of the um, Communist Party Jews that hated being Jewish also? I mean, that's kind no, of what they, we were talking they, they about originally. Hate, they didn't hate, they didn't they hate, hate, they hate being, Jewish. being Jewish. They, they, hated, they, hated, they hated Judaism. Yeah, they hated, they hated religion. Sorry, Jews that hate Judaism. Interestingly, many of them had been Bundists before the Bolshevik Revolution. And what is a Bundist? Uh, Tell people a Bundist is a, is. is a Jew, Jewish socialist. Uh-huh. Uh, they've been Buddhist before the, uh, the, the Bolshevik revolution. They became Bolsheviks after the revolution, but they, and they still, much of which retained a lot of sensibilities that the Buddhists had. The Buddhists were anti-religious, um, but they were also pro-Yiddish and they had, um, they considered Jewish identity to be, uh, or sort of a Jewish national identity to be a value in and of itself, whereas the Soviet perspective was uh, that Jews should eventually assimilate into society at large. Right. Uh, and these Bundists who became Bolsheviks, many of them were uh, executed in the purges of 1937, 1938. So do we see uh, modern examples of this, of Jews that hate Judaism? Or other you, weird examples throughout history, bizarre, if you will. I don't think there's any. Group <laughs> or is this either. the only real movement? The, the, this is the only time it happens on, on kind of a mass scale. You know, an organized popular effort to attack religion. I think it happens. You know, the anarchists are at the forefront of that. 
the Soviet Union picks it up um, and institutes it, and it becomes highly oppressive under the Soviet state. And then I think after the Holocaust, no one would consider this appropriate in any way, shape, or form. You Although, know. you know, what, I think in Israel there were, there were certain groups uh, that were anti-religious. They were anti-religious, but did they conf- did they conduct? These I don't think I don't think it was you, I don't think it was I don't think it was confronted in the same way. It's funny. It, it keeps making me think of, and we shouldn't get into this because it's a way far off turn. But it keeps making me think of going back to the conversation we had about messianism. It keeps making me think about um, religious. The inverse of this is like the religious Jews that are anti-Zionist. Mm-hmm. So they yeah. live within the Zionist society. They mm-hmm. take advantage of the benefits of the Zionist society and the fact that this Zionist nation exists or whatever. I mean, I'm speaking mm-hmm. very generally right now, but that there's a place for them to go and be that is defined by the, their uh, religion and ethnography, I guess, or whatever you want to say. But they don't believe in the state. Mm-hmm. So it's the same as living within the community and it's not the same, but on some level and enjoying the benefits of the greater Jewish community, but rejecting the core philosophy, which is the idea that religion is what binds you together. If you believe that, I mean, I, I obviously there's cultural Judaism and there's religious Judaism, but it is interesting uh, to be both part and apart. So it's, Tony, that's it. Are are the are the Haredim comparable to the? Are they the anarchists of our day? Well, I I don't know if I'd say that, but I'd say that what I think anarchists in the Haredim show are, or they reflect the extreme, the extremes of of modernity of Jewish modernity, meaning that starting in around I don't know somewhere around eighteen hundred, you know, and then going forward, you see these extreme movements among Jews. You know, you have the ultra ultra orthodox. You have the anarchists who are trying trying to re- negate religion. You've got um, social Zionists who are trying to build a whole new utopian society. You have communists who are using the power of the state to totally reconstitute what it means to be Jewish. There are other examples for sure. You know, but it seems that this is um, in a way. Well, this is so much of what the podcast is about: is looking at these bizarre extremes. And we see them in so many different manifestations. And, and, and this, I, I think, is, is endemic to the modern experience for Jews, is that when Jews encount, encountered my modernity, even when they wanted to be normal in some way, even when they wanted to fit in, even when they wanted to be part of some larger community, over and over again, they engage in all kinds of extreme activity, which winds up differentiating them from the larger society that they're part of or want to be part of. So it's like the Jewish X Games is what you're saying. Yeah, I'd say I've never seen the X Games, so I think that's that's. I don't think Eddie's right right about that. (laughs) Don't agree with him just because he said it. Or or, or, or it's just, it's just, you know, there's a component of Jewish society that always engages in extreme ball movements. Um, And and those are Jewish skateboarders? I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know, Eddie. I'm going to let you sit with that. Yeah, though being anti-Zionist is about the most old-fashioned thing you could be. I guess it's modern to be able to express it and have it be a subgroup, but it's about the most old-fashioned thing you could be. Because what you're saying is, don't tell me the Messiah came. 
Don't start setting up utopia till the Messiah's here. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they can const- they construct it in that same way. But uh, but that's kind of what they're saying. They're saying. Well, no. um, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're saying this is all a play until the Messiah steps in. You guys are ma- you guys are forcing this to happen. So this is supposed to be set off by a different catalyst, not by not just because you say you all want to be together and construct society this way. Is that right? Don't they think uh, it's happening backwards, basically? They they do, but anti-Zionism is modern, meaning anti-Zionism couldn't have existed. Well, Zionism without, is without modern. Zion- yes, yeah. Yeah. Th- exactly. therefore anti-Zionism is modern. So those ultra-Orthodox Jews that look like they're from another century and believe they're behaving and thinking in ways that are no different than their forebears behaved, you know, three, 400 years ago right. are, are actually, are actually modern, um, in, in a very, um, uh, they're, they're modern in their rejection of modernity. Zionism is an aspect of modernity that they can't tolerate. And, um, so again, there's, there are those extremes again, I guess you win, Tony. What do I win? Who, who's gonna break? <laughs> who's gonna break it to the residents of Mayor Sharim that they're not? Uh, that they're I'll, they're the most modern people around. So, I, I will. Who's gonna will break it that. to the hat makers? I'll go there with it with a letter from <laughs> from you. <laughs> I'll present it to him. Um, uh, no, we're we're fascinating. all we're all we're all modern in different ways, and like I said, I think for Jews, it's produced all sorts all sorts of polarities and extremes. Uh, and still do. I mean, I don't see it going away. I see things changing, but um, well, polarities but, and extremes—that's what this podcast is supposed to be about. Just, yeah, maybe, so, maybe we should just have so people polarities. know. Maybe we should have called it Jewish polarities. I'm sure. Oh, uh, who, it's catchy. That's who, very catchy. Who, who would jump on that, Eddie? Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. That appeals to me. Sign me up. I'm sure <laughs> you're the only one. Jewish polarities. <laughs> I like that's that, good, Eddie. You got a future. You got a future um, on Madison. All right, Island. this was fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very short future, and it's not yeah. terrib- not terribly bright. But you've got one, Eddie. You know. Well, guys, this was great. Uh, I guess I just want to say thanks to everyone for joining us, um, and to terrific Eddie Portnoy of the Evo Inst- of the Provincial Evo Institute of New York, as established at the beginning of the show, and uh, Town Mouse. Don Mouse, Tony Michaels from the University of Wisconsin. The Evo Institute, I have to say, I have to say the Evo Institute is very urbane. (laughs) But not urban. Not urban. No. Urbane. That's what we're talking about. Um, All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jessica.